Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of the Development by David podcast. I am so overwhelmed and excited to share this episode with you. I've been waiting to share it for many months. I recorded this maybe November last year and I had teed it up six months before that. This gentleman is truly remarkable. This week, my guest is Stephen Beatty, a medicine student at the University of Dundee and a personal trainer. This introduction might sound somewhat typical or out of the box, but trust me, his story is not. Stephen's story is perhaps the most unique, electric and traumatic I've ever heard on any podcast, never mind this one that we share together. Stephen was born into deprivation and addiction. Stephen's life has been full of challenges, including growing up in gang culture in Glasgow, caring for parents with serious illnesses such as Parkinson's and cancer, serving time in Europe's most dangerous prison, Pullman, surviving multiple near-death experiences including multiple stabbings and a 70 miles per hour drunk crash. Wow, despite these obstacles and experiences, Stephen has been able to turn his life entirely around, studying physiology at the University of Glasgow, a university that someone from his background may not typically ever get to go to. And now he is becoming a doctor at the University of Dundee. Stephen has also trained for the Marines, learnt fluent Spanish and became the fastest sprinter in universities across Scotland. There's a point where he was writing with both hands, taking notes in his university class. One side of the paper was in Spanish and the other was in English. So this podcast is just not about one man's journey but about the potential of all young people who are struggling to find or make their way. It's a message of hope and inspiration for anyone who has faced adversity or felt like just giving up. In this podcast, Stephen shares his journey for the very first time. Stephen's story is a testament to the resilience of the human spirit and it's just a source of inspiration for anyone looking to overcome obstacles and achieve their lifelong goals. He shares the important lesson that I want everyone to walk away with, and I'm going to share it with you up front. Where you come from doesn't define where you go and who you are, and that with determination and hard work and support, anything is literally possible. I have and will never release a podcast just like this. Please, please stick around for the whole thing. Give Stephen's story your whole respect, because it's not one to miss. I rarely ever speak like this before a podcast, so I hope you trust trust this intro and trust me and, and my advice here because there's so much to learn from a man like Stephen. I am really, really grateful for his time. I'm really, really grateful that I could have this conversation in the Green Room Studios in Glasgow. If you want to watch this uh, intimate discussion in 4K, then head over to my YouTube channel and tune in to the whole thing. But for now... Before you share this on WhatsApp or in Facebook groups, because I know you will, this episode is just so unique. Time for Stephen Beatty. And just really quickly before we kick off, I want to remind you of a brand that I've been using every single day. That is Vibe, the meal replacement shake. You might remember Gordon Belch being on the podcast, one of their co-founders. It was such a well-played and well-received episode. I've been using Vibe every single day. It's such a quick and convenient breakfast that I have and it's interlaced with such amazing um, nutrient profiles but also nootropics. If you don't know what nootropic is, it's basically a cognitive enhancer. My mates Gordon and Rory have taken this company worldwide, both operating in Australia and the UK 
and their mission is to provide world-class nutritional products that are convenient and affordable and given back to disadvantaged communities. You know my work in the social mobility landscape really aligns with this, so that's why I have partnered with them on the podcast. They've got a few flavours, but my favourite is the vanilla. I use it just for a quick and convenient breakfast in the morning. Provides me with all the nutrients I need to set me up for the day and keeps me full until lunch. I've been going back into the office most recently and you know what it's like getting up early at 7am trying to cook something, it's just hard work. Or you go out to the shops and spend five, six pounds on a coffee and a croissant. It doesn't really fill you the same. This has been a godsend. So thank you everyone at Vibe for sending me your products. Um, you can get it for as little as £1.50 per meal and you can use code DMAC for 15% off whether on the UK or Australian website. You can find them at vibe.com.au or vibe.co.uk. Stephen Beatty, welcome to the Development by David podcast in this amazing studio. How are you? I'm really good. It's a pleasure to be here. We have connected back and forth for the last, what, six months? We have. Gordon puts in touch with each other. Yeah, previous guest. Yep. And he said, David, the premise of your podcast is to use origin stories as a self-development tool. And I've had the privilege to have both local heroes, local stories on the podcast, and most recently, some big names. Yeah. And these people have shared their story far and wide. They've packaged it, polished it, been on platforms before, and it's a very transactional relationship. I guess at this point, they're using what seems to be a small following to kind of maybe market their brand or to give themselves visibility on another platform. But I don't think that's what you want. You're not here to promote yourself. No. You're here out of generosity. So if I were to ask you why you said yes to coming on the podcast before we got on into yeah. it, how would you answer that? I was after speaking with you, a few of my old coaches and teachers, that they said, I really think if you spoke about your story, you can inspire a lot of people. Because it was like 10 years where I didn't speak a word of this to anybody. I didn't really want to. I didn't really think it would make much of a difference. Then years later, after speaking with them, they said, I really do think you can inspire people by doing it. So I published an initial message on Facebook. That's how we got in touch with each other, through Gordon. Then you said to me as well, I would like to have you on the podcast. At first, I was a bit hesitant about it. But then after thinking about it and you saying as well, maybe a few people could take something positive from it. I thought, yeah, why not? The post on Facebook had a lot of positive comments. I thought doing a podcast maybe reach more people. Yeah. Why not go for it? Before we touch on the story, when you released the Facebook post and you shared your story yeah. for the first time, how did that make you feel? It was a relief to a certain extent. Yeah. It's something it was always part of who you are, but you never wanted to speak about it. And only a slight group of my friends knew about it. So publishing that was yeah, it was a relief just to get it off my chest. Because I knew that other people, especially the group of friends I grew up with, who could relate to it. And I knew there was a lot of people who grew up in that lifestyle that were getting into trouble and they couldn't see any hope. And I knew if I could show them that what I did to turn my life around, then they could do it as well. Like if you knew me when I was 18, 19, you would never think I would be sitting where I am just now. You would probably think I'd be dead or still in the jail. So if I can turn my life around, anybody else can. It doesn't matter what kind of mistakes you've made. Let's kick off the story then. Let's take it back to... Young Stephen Beatty, where you're born, your family dynamic, your yeah. kind of first memories. Born in Glasgow. My mum and dad never worked when I grew up. I was a carer for them. My dad had Parkinson's disease. My mum had paranoid schizophrenia as well. So from an early age, I was always involved in like the care of them. 
and that sort of occupied my time. So by the time I got to school, I wasn't listening. I was always getting suspended from every primary school and secondary school I went to, and I went to a lot because I was always moving schools. I was always getting suspended and getting into trouble, throwing rubbles at teachers, setting off fire alarms, just not paying attention in class, just being a little shit. And then I started getting in a lot of fights. And then in secondary school, as you start getting older, at Glasgow at that time was a violent place. And I got involved in a lot of a lot of gang violence as well. What part of Glasgow? Hillington, on the south side. How would you have described that during the time that you kind of grew up there? Rough. Yeah, a working class community. It bordered a few other pretty rough areas as well. And at that time, if you were from a different area, that meant you were a part of a different gang. But you couldn't go to the shops at a different area at that point without worrying about getting in a fight with somebody. Like Glasgow is always going to have some violence in it. It's a violent city, always has been. But it's nowhere near as bad as it was back then. How old are you now? 33. What age were you getting into trouble then? That would have been your kind of well, I was, age of 12? Yeah, 11, 12. Yeah. And school, I was always getting into trouble. Why? I guess you talk about being a carer for your mum and dad, but uh-huh. that probably meant that you weren't being cared for and your needs weren't being met and you weren't being heard, heard as a child. Do I you think, think that's what you took oh, into the classroom? Oh, definitely. 100%. I think I was acting out, getting that attention in other places that you weren't getting at home. I think there's a, a large part of it's that. But again, the people I was hanging around with were getting involved in a lot of trouble. So you're a collection of the people that you associate with. And at that time, I was associating with a lot of people that get involved in gangs and fighting. So we were all, every one of my friends were getting involved in trouble. Probably not to the same extent that I was, but I were all getting involved in, in trouble in gangs. And if you surround yourself with gangs, then it's no surprise that you get in trouble, is it? Were there more of your family than your actual family to some degree? Oh, definitely. Yeah. A hundred percent. It's like the people you grow up with, the people you surround yourself with 24-7, especially when your family background is not as supportive as maybe it should be or a normal family. And if your other friends have similar backgrounds, you have that in common. The connection you have with your friend because both of your parents maybe not even there are not looking after you, but you look after each other. So you develop that connection that you don't, I don't think you quite get unless you have a common, something common, like some trauma in common. Like both of your mothers and fathers maybe didn't work or they were ill, they were sick, but in some cases didn't have mothers and fathers, they were dead, they were getting looked after by their, their grandparents. Having that in common definitely brings you together. You develop a, a stronger a stronger bond than you would otherwise. You talk about how only now you've really shared your story in full. Mm-hmm. And prior to that, you kind of kept it secret. As a young teenager, were you quite transparent about your background to your peers? Yeah, it was obvious. I couldn't hide being in Pullman Young Offenders Institution. That's where I was. So everybody knew, especially all my friends were getting involved in trouble as well. There was a few of them that went into Pullman and, and other young offenders institutions in Scotland. So... Yeah, it was never something I was trying to hide amongst my friends. But I suppose you could say amongst my extended family, it wasn't something I would talk about at all. I know my mother, she would always hide that stuff from my aunties as well. I imagine she'd be embarrassed that her son was getting into so much trouble. What is Pullman Young Offenders Institution for the people that don't recognise the name? Probably the best way to describe it. It's a jail for people under the age of 21. It's the, the only jail we have in Scotland for young males. I think females go there now as well. So if you're under 21 years of age, you don't go to a jail, you go to a young offenders institution. And that's the main one we have. I think it's the only one we have now. It's in Falkirk. And what does that look like in terms of your, your day if you if you, you have to go there? And well, initially, if you're on if you're on remand, you're awaiting sentence. So you're basically in a hall 
like you've probably seen in the TV, you're in a cell, you've got a pool table in the hall, you're in your room for 23 hours a day, you get out for one hour a day, play pool and have a shower. But then once you've been sentenced, so once you've been convicted of whatever crime you're up in front of the court for, and then you've been given a custodial sentence, you could get six months or six years, you'll then move to another part of the jail where you'll get a job. So you can go out in nine o'clock to five o'clock and you'll work in various different roles. You could work in the gym or you could work down at the down at the kitchen. But again, but Pullman, I don't know if you know much about Pullman at the time. That was a very violent place. It was voted the most violent young offenders institution in Western Europe. And rightfully so. It wasn't until I initially got there at 16 years old that I realized why it's such a reputation. Was your first altercation with the police what led you there? or No, it wasn't the first. No, definitely not the Do first. The first altercation with the police, I was like 13, 14 years old. Do you remember it? No, I can't remember the exact first one. I can remember roughly when I started getting bothered with the police, but specifically the first one, I couldn't remember more. What events were leading up to your your, your Pullman? Um, I don't call it incar incarceration, but... Gang fighting, yeah. It was the gang fighting that started to escalate. At school, it was bad, but it wasn't serious. But once we left school, it got very serious. People were getting stabbed. One of my friends got stabbed. He got stabbed in the neck, nearly lost his life as well. When did you see that? How old were you? I was 16. I was 16 years old. I was the one that had to take my jumper off and hold it to his neck. I was right next to him when it happened. One of the guys that we were fighting with from another gang had a broken bottle in his hand and he stabbed him right in the neck with it. And you could see the big hole in his neck when it happened. And he severed his jugular vein. And the only reason he's still alive to this day is because me and my other friend were there with him. We took our jumpers off and we put it on his neck until the ambulance came. So th those sort of traumatic events at 16, 17 years old it's going to affect you. It doesn't matter who you are. And then after that, everything just spiraled out of control even worse. Like you would think if something like that happened, you would learn from it. It'd be a wake-up call for most people. Me just now thinking, if I seen my friend getting stabbed in the neck, I probably shouldn't do what we've been doing because that's probably going to happen to me or something worse. But back then, none of us really took it as a wake-up call. It actually made us worse because what you wanted to do was get revenge for your friend. It sounds silly just now, but that's the way we were thinking. What came after that first major event? The first major one for me was, well, my friend stayed in, he stayed in Renfrew, right? So we were from Hillington and Renfrew is just in the outskirts of Glasgow. So maybe 10, 15 minutes in the car. But again, at that time, going to another area that you're not from was a bad idea. So we went to his house, we were drinking, we got hungry. Four of us decided to go to the kebab shop. We went down to the kebab shop, it was maybe 200 meters from his house. Inside the kebab shop, two other boys came to the door from the local area. They opened the door, they said the words that I think everybody in Glasgow's heard, where the fuck are you, Faye? Where are you from, right? We said we're from Hilton. They said, what the fuck are you doing here? And then we get into a fight. One of them had a, a bottle and he tried to hit me in the face with it. It was a broken bottle and he stabbed me in the hand. As you can see, that big scar I've got here. And as we were, the fight ended and as we were running away, I could feel the blood squirting out of my hand. I'd severed an artery in his hand. And to give you an idea of where my mindset was at the time, I get back to my friend's house, right? We phoned the ambulance. I was inside the toilet, squirting the blood onto the mirror inside the toilet, laughing like Spider-Man, like that. Squirting it and saying to my friends, look, to laugh. Thankfully, my friends had a wee bit more common sense than I did. They put a very amateur tourniquet on me, elevated my hand. A taxi actually came before the ambulance came. The ambulance took me to the hospital. The doctor came to see me. He said, you're lucky you got here in time because you could very easily bled to death. 
Now, at that time, the nurse had noticed something. She came and sat next to me and said, your finger's hanging off. I said, what do you mean my finger? And I looked down, and I couldn't feel any pain at that point, and my pinky was hanging off. There was just a bit of bone left and a bit of tendon. And she said, well, you're going to need to get an operation to repair the pinky and an operation to repair the, the tendons in my, in my hands. So for two months after that, I had both hands in cast and I couldn't do anything, couldn't tie my shoes, couldn't eat. My mum had to help me with cutting my food and all that as well. And you'd think that was a bit of a wake-up call, but it wasn't. It was only eight months after that where the next serious incident happened. We were at my other friend's house, Chris, and he had, up until that point, he had a bit of a, a fight with his neighbour who stayed directly above him, who was a wee bit older than us. We were in his house drinking. And my friend Chris came back into the room and said, you'll need to come outside and give me a hand. Honours, they called it, right? They fight with this guy outside. So we go outside. As we go outside, he sees us coming out. So he locks himself in his house. My friend's trying to kick the door in, right? His door, he can't get it open. But the guy's left his car outside. So the car's just there in the middle of the road. My friend picks up a brick. And it's not just a brick, it's a slab. You know the slabs you get in gardens? These big, massive square slabs. So he pricks this thing up. And he tries to smash the driver's side window with it. And this is an old red course that's bulletproof. He hits it two or three times, doesn't smash. Goes to the, the next window, couldn't get it in. Walks around the back of the car and gets it through. Smashes it through the back of the car, right? It lands directly in the centre of the parcel shelf, right? Now remember this because this is going to be very, very important later on. So I get in the car. The guy's left his keys in it, unfortunately for him. And what would be unfortunate for me as well. I get in the car, drunk, didn't have a licence take the car, drive away, drive around the corner, come back to pick up my friends. Only one of my friends was stupid enough to get in the car with me. Because remember, they know I didn't have a license, I couldn't drive, and I was drunk. Me and my friend took the car to the local industrial estate, steaming, took shots of it, doing handbrake turns. We decided stupidly enough that we would go to my house in Arden. Now, I was living in Arden at the time, and not having because of the stuff of the gangs. People kept smashing my windows, kicking my door in, so I had to move away. So that's why I was staying in Arden. So we decided we'll take the car, to my house, because there was alcohol in my house, right? So we drive through towards Arden and we stop in Cardonald, which is in the route, the route to Arden. We get out of the car because we think this is a bad idea, which it was. Ran through our back garden, we decided we're just going to leave the car. Stupidly enough, we both of us decided, do you know what we'll do? It's five minutes to Arden. We'll take the car to Arden for five minutes. We'll leave it there, we'll get the drinks. So another five minutes, we don't need to pay for a taxi. Okay, I'll drive. I get in the car, he gets in the passenger seat. We're driving along Breakcraft Road is where you go through port towards Ardain. I can't remember any of this. And we're driving at 70 miles an hour. And it's a ferry. And as the bend happens in the road, I lose control. Mounting up on the curb, 70 miles an hour into a tree. The ambulance and the fire brigade come to try and cut us out of the car. Because the car's in bits, it's folded right on top of each other. That, remember the slab I was telling you about? That slab had came flying right through the parcel shelf at the back, directly through the front window. So if that had been on the right-hand side or the left-hand side, it would have took our heads off, quite literally. So they had to resuscitate me inside the car. They then had to resuscitate me once they cut me out of the car inside the ambulance. My next memory is waking up in the operating theatre, screaming about my hip. I'd broken my hip here. My hip was up there. And I was screaming about how much pain I was in. So they must have given me drugs and I went back to sleep because my next memory is waking up in the hospital bed. And this is probably the scariest thing because I woke up in the hospital bed and my right leg's in traction. And if you don't know what that means, if you break your hip, they put a metal pin through your leg and they hoist it up in the air. So I've got wires holding my leg up in the air. I've fractured my jaw, that's why I've got this big scar here. 
I've got a cover over my right leg, my left leg, sorry, and I can't see my feet. I can't feel them. I feel like I've lost with the left half of my leg, the bottom half, because I could feel the top half, but now it was a caster. But I couldn't feel further down because I couldn't sit up. And because how tightly they tucked the duvet covers in the hospital, I couldn't pull the sheet off. I just didn't have the strength to see the end of my foot. A nurse was walking past and I shouted her over. Say what happened? He's in a really bad car crash. I said, what happened to my legs? He said, well, you've smashed this kneecap. You don't have it anymore. Your kneecap's exploded on impact. You broke your hip. That's why it's in a wire. I said, I still have the bottom half of my foot. I can't see it. She said, you do. I said, could you pull that sheet off? I just had to see my foot to know it was there. She pulled my foot, uh, the sheet off. I seen my foot. I was glad I still had a foot. Now, at that time, one of the only positive things I had in my life was athletics, right? I got in athletics from school. And I knew if I was to turn my life around, I had to make sure I could do athletics. So I said to her, well, I'll be able to run again. She said, you'll be lucky to walk again. You literally don't have a kneecap. You've broken your hip. So I pause and I'm thinking, and then my friend comes into my mind. Fuck happened to Chris? I said, what happened to Chris? And she gave me this look that somebody only gives when something really bad has happened. And I said to her, is he dead? She said, no, he's not dead, but he's broke his back. I said, is he paralyzed? She said, we don't know, he's going for an operation tomorrow, we'll have to wait and see. And then she just leaves. I don't have my phone with me. I'm in this bed, literally attached to it, by wires. I can't move. You imagine the thoughts surging through my mind. Like, what did my mum and dad think? Did they know I'm alive? Am I ever going to be able to walk again? Have I just paralyzed my friend, one of my best friends? And you would think again that that would be a wake-up call. Look what you've done. You nearly killed yourself. You nearly killed your friend. You broke your friend's back. You broke your own legs. But that just made everything worse. Because I no longer had the gym or athletics to go to, at the weekend I would use that as an excuse. My friends would phone and see you coming out and say, no, I can't, I'm training. I know I couldn't. Because they knew where I was going to be. I was in the house. I'd get addicted to tramadol. Because the pain was, it was awful. Couldn't sleep. So we'd be taking tramadol, drinking in the house. My friends would come up, we'd get into trouble. We'd play the music, we'd annoy the neighbours, we'd throw stuff out the windows. Now that would lead to other convictions I would get as well, just being stupid. And it took me maybe two years of rehab to get my legs back to a condition where I could run again. And it wasn't until the last sentence in Pullman, but it was, it was like two years later, where my legs were actually at the point where I could walk without any pain in them. Because I wasn't doing the rehab. If somebody had broke the leg and, get, and done that, they hit what I'd done, you would follow what the physiotherapist was telling you to do. The physiotherapist was giving me stuff to do, I was just ignoring it. I was just drinking, taking tramadol and fucking around in the house. Drinking my friends, getting out in the street on crutches and still going into gang fights. That's a... I need to take a moment to just kind of let that story sink <laughs> in again. I've heard it abbreviated before when we've met. But just hearing the finite details and some of the ways you were thinking during it just makes it more alarming and more yep. shocking to hear. And... Like you said, you'd think that would change what came next. There would be another wake-up call. When was your first visit to Pullman? What, what a singular event caused that? I was 16. I was gang fighting on the Paisley Road West. So I got sent to remand at 16. Uh, me and one of my other friends, but he got released. I was the only one to get sent to Pullman at the time. But at 16, one of the things that did do was I realised that Pullman wasn't it wasn't as bad as I thought it would be in the terms that I made a lot of friends. So now that incentive not to go there because you were worried about the place had been gone. Because now if you get any trouble, they're just going to send you to Pullman for a couple of months with your pals. You're going to play football, you're going to have a laugh and you're going to get back out and have a drink. So it was no longer a, a deterrent for me. 
that's probably made things worse as well. I was now no longer, no longer worried about getting sent to Pullman because all my pals were there. So somebody said to you, we're going to go and send you for a couple months thinking about your pals. Is that a deterrent for you? Not at all. Especially when you came from a household of fragility where you didn't have, there wasn't a hierarchy, there wasn't structure, there wasn't role models around you, but perhaps in the prison there, there, there were. There was. There was structure, there was a hierarchy, and there was people that you could relate to, maybe even look up to and replicate. Yeah, definitely. One thing jail definitely gives you is, is structure. You get up at a certain time and, you, and once you're sentenced, you have to go to your, your job, you keep your room tidy. And again, it's like sort of military life. For people that are causing trouble when they're younger, I think one of the best things they can have in life is structure. That's one thing that the army can give you. And I knew that at the time because I went to the army recruitment office as an 18-year-old, but they wouldn't accept me because of my criminal convictions. They said, come back in seven years. So so that idea was out of the question. And it wasn't until I was going back to my athletics after this happened with my knee, but I was still getting into trouble. And I was coming home one night and my mum and dad stayed in Arden because had, they had to move because of me. And it's maybe 300 meters from the bus stop to my house. And I'm walking up the lane, pretty drunk. And I meet this other guy, roughly about the same age as me. He's pretty drunk as well. He says the same thing that guy said to me in the kebab shop in Renfrew. What fuck are you, Faye? He said, Tillerton. I said, what the fuck are you doing here? Is that a stay here? We're going to fight. I didn't think anything of it. A couple of punches, maybe lasted 10, 15 seconds. He went his way, I went my way. I'm walking up the lane, right? I can hear this sound that I'll never forget. Imagine you turn on the tap in your garden and the water's just bouncing off the concrete. That sound you can hear, that's what I could hear. And I couldn't really breathe, so I put my hand here because I feel it getting wet. I put my hand up my t-shirt and I pulled it out and it was covered in blood. That sound that I could hear hitting off the concrete was blood dripping out of me. So I put my hand right down to see where it was coming from. I could put my finger in the hole. So I put my finger in the hole, so I was like, oh, he's stabbed me. I got up the stairs, I'm drifting in and out of consciousness. I'm shouting at my mum to phone an ambulance. My mum comes to the door, she's absolutely panicking. She can see all this blood I'm losing. I say to my mum and dad that I love them because I think I'm going to die. I'm bouncing off the walls, trying to hold myself up. The ambulance gets there relatively quickly, five, ten minutes. Get to the hospital, can't remember much of it. The doctor comes over and says to me, you're very lucky. He said, I, I got stabbed once, sir, I was thinking. He said, no, you've been stabbed twice. You two stab marks in the back. One of them's went directly through your left lung. That's why you can't breathe. You've punctured your left lung. But he said you've been extremely lucky because if that stab mark was millimetres to the right-hand side, it would have went through the back of your heart and you wouldn't have been there. Now, I always remember this doctor because he tried to speak sense to me. He's obviously had a look at my hospital records and realised over the last two years this guy's nearly died three or four separate occasions. And he said to me, if you continue doing what you're going to do, you're eventually going to run out of luck and you're going to die. I didn't listen to him again. So that's the car crash, the hand, and then nearly getting stabbed through the heart. I just wasn't listening. It wasn't until my last custodial sentence in Pullman where things finally started to click, where I finally started to say to myself, if I keep doing this, I'm going to end up dead and in jail. Because some of my friends from the jail at that point had already been murdered. I'd nearly been murdered myself. So I thought, if I continue doing what I'm doing just now, what's going to happen? I'm probably going to die. And I've done something that I still do to this day. So maybe a 12-month sentence and two months left on it, right? What was the 12-month sentence for? For gang fighting. For gang fighting in the city centre in Glasgow. So I had two months left, and I got in three fights in one week in Pullman. If you get in fights in Pullman, you need to get punished. I got in front of the governor, who's the guy that's going to give you your punishment. He said, you've been in three fights in a week, you're out in two months. For the next two months, I'm taking your telly. I was in the room myself, and my cell myself. So he took the telly off me, he took all my privileges off me. So I was stuck in that room. 
but for the first time in my life that I can remember, I had time to think. Because remember before that, when I went home, all the chaos at the house, all the chaos in school, all the gang thing, I never really had time to just sit and think where my life was going. That was the first time that I did. So in Poland, I'd say this trick that I always do to this day, if I continue doing what I'm doing just now, well will I be in five years? And if I don't like that destination, well, I've got to change it. And I didn't like the destination. So I wrote down what I had to do to change and what was getting me into trouble. First one was Glasgow. Second one was gangs. And the, sec the third one was drink. I was like, drink's easy. I've just stopped drinking. I need to move out of Glasgow, but that requires money. I didn't have any money. I didn't have a job. I've got terrible qualifications, get suspended from school. I'm coming out of Poland Young Offenders Institution. Who's going to employ that guy? Highly unlikely that anybody is. And what tools do I have to give to somebody? What can I sell to make money? I thought, if a company's not going to employ me, and rightfully so at that time, I have to work for myself. But what can I do? The only thing I was good at now was fitness. So I thought, I'm going to set up my own personal training business. I'm going to save up money. I'm going to move out of Glasgow. I'm going to stop drinking. I'm going to stop getting involved in gangs. And I knew it was going to be extremely difficult because all my friends at that time were involved in all that. So I got out of jail, and the first day I got out of jail, I signed myself up for an athletics competition because I knew if I had something to focus on, I would be less likely to fall back into that trap. So the athletics competition, six weeks after getting released from Poland, it means the only training I'd done in that two months was stuff for myself. So every day I would just train like an animal in the cell, doing squats, doing pull-ups, rehabilitating my hips and rehabilitating my knee. So I got the competition, stopped drinking, set up the personal training business, saved up money, got a flat, Moved out of Glasgow. Two years, almost two years, everything's gone really, really well. I got back at athletics competitions. I started making good improvements. My knee was really good. My hip was really good. Then I got food poisoned. This is where it all gets really, really weird, right? So you think nothing of it. You get food poisoned a couple of days, you're fine. A couple of days later, I was fine. Five to six weeks later, I wake up. I've got this pain in my groin. If I pulled my groin. That's what I thought it happened. I didn't remember doing it at training, but sometimes that happens. You pull a muscle at training, but you don't see it until the next day. So for a couple of days, this is going to get better, and then I'll get back to training. But then it got really weird, because I woke up and it was my right groin this time. But I said to myself, I'm sure it was my left groin. I thought it was going mad. The next couple of days, it starts radiating down my knees. It starts radiating down to my feet. The next couple of weeks, it gets so bad. I'm sleeping in the living room on a mattress on the floor, pissing in an empty milk carton because I can't walk to the toilet. Starts raiding up my back. My eyes start getting really, really sore. I'm thinking, what the fuck is going on here? I'm waking up in the morning, I've got green stuff all over my eyes, like conjunctivitis. Can't see, my vision's getting really bloody. My friends and family are trying to convince me to go to the hospital. But I keep saying to myself, I think I've pinched a, a nerve in my back or I've put a muscle in my leg, making excuses so I didn't have to go. I couldn't drive my car, lying on the, the mattress in the living room. My friends finally decided, you want me to take you there? So they basically dragged me into the car, took me down to the hospital. Hospital took me in for two or three weeks. I was in there, they had no idea what was going on. They said, your inflammation markers are through the roof. There's something serious going on, but we have no idea what it is. It wasn't until some Swedish doctor in the hospital at the time came to see me. And he'd asked me if I had any illnesses in the couple of months leading up to this. And I said to him about the food poison. He said, I think I know what's going wrong with you. He said, you've got writer syndrome. Same, same response that you had. <laughs> what is that? And he was explaining it to me. He said... Writer syndrome was a condition where your immune system starts to attack your own joints after an initial infection, the food poisoning. That's what happened to me. So because there's a, like, a lag period, you have the food poisoning, it's not until four or five weeks later, it's very hard to draw a conclusion between the food poisoning and what's happening more than a month later. So he leaves and I do as much as I can to start studying stuff. This is where the studying came from because I'd never studied really much before that at all. But now again, I couldn't move. I was 
once I got released from the hospital, they gave me a drug called methotrexic, which they give to people that's got cancer because it shuts down your immune system, but it also makes you really vulnerable to viruses and colds, etc. And also wipes the floor off. You can't do anything. So I'm lying on the floor, reading as much as I can about reactive arthritis. Well, that's what it gets called now because writer's syndrome, the guy who discovered it was a Nazi doctor who was implicated in Nazi war crimes in the 40s and the 50s. But because of that, they changed it to reactive arthritis, which is probably more suited because it's more in line with what's actually going on and people can understand what you're talking about. So I spend months reading up about reactive arthritis and everything I can do to try and fix my body. Still can't walk, still can't get up the stairs, definitely can't run, can't go to the gym, can't work. That leads me on to a few other things that I'd, I'd never done before. Started studying stuff about my mother and father's illnesses, about Parkinson's disease and about diabetes and about schizophrenia. And I would develop a really good knowledge on all those. So I would go and speak to my dad's doctors. I'd be having really in-depth conversations about Parkinson's disease, the neurology behind it. And he would say to me, he's like, have you ever thought about going to university and doing medicine? What was your response to that? No, never thought about that. I get suspended from every school I went to. I've never thought about doing medicine at university. And I couldn't, I didn't have the qualifications to either. Did you think university is not for, university is not a place for someone like me? Definitely. And I even felt that when I got to the university at Glasgow, like I stood out. That was a working class former Ned with a thick Glaswegian accent. That's not the typical Glas uh, Glasgow University student, as you know. So he said this to you, and that was the first time you probably had something that was beyond violence, beyond crime, that you could look up to, point at, and shoot for. Definitely. But the other than sport, other than sport. Yeah. But the reality is, despite you having such a great self-learned understanding of physiology and some of the conditions that affected your life, both from your own health and that of your parents, you were still there was still so much friction between where you were at. And to get into university. Yeah, definitely. How did you make that a reality? Well, I knew that I had convictions and that might be an issue. I knew I didn't have qualifications. I was definitely going to be an issue getting to university. But what I found was an access course. What's that? So in Scotland, there's an access course. It's a year you can do at college, which gives you a chance to apply at university. So because I didn't have the GCSEs and the hires that you needed, I had to do an access course. So an access course, it's a year. You do an access course and then you can apply at university. I'd done that access course in 2015 but during the same time just before I got to start it was 2014 I applied initially but they said no I'd done all this study and applied for it and they said no but that was the first time in my life that when somebody said to me no I used it positively I didn't get super angry with it I just said to myself well if I've learned this much in a year they've said no I can apply in another year if I continue doing what I'm doing I'll be a year smarter and I'll just apply again during that year my mum got diagnosed with cancer though right and I was due to start in August. I reapplied. I got accepted. She knew it. She was super happy. She said, we were due to start in August. But in July, she passed away. And I remember thinking I didn't want to start. I had so much stuff going on in my head. I was looking after my dad. My mum had just died. College was coming in August. I hadn't studied never in my life. Fighting for I just decided I'll just go for a couple of weeks and see what happens. Everything was really, really good, though. Uh, it went well past that. Got accepted into Glasgow University. Met another guy from athletics, John, who would become my coach. He said to me, why don't you come train with me for a year? Let me see what I can do with you, right? I said, okay, my knee was starting to get a bit sore again. It was playing up. I wasn't running as much as I could. And I thought I could train with him for maybe a year or two before my body's going to give up on me. That's how bad it was, right? He said, what event do you want to do? I said, I don't think I can do the hurdles anymore because, <laughs> because my hips are really, really bad. I can't run around a bend, can't do 200s. He said, we'll do the 100 then. The 100 is like the main event in athletics. 
I said, okay, we'll do the 100. And if we're going to do it, why do we not just set big goals? What do you want to do? I said, well, let's be the fastest runner in Scotland. Let's be the Scottish champion. Right? So for any sprinter in Scotland, there's three major titles you can win. You can win the universities if you're at uni. So it's all the colleges and universities have a competition. You see who's the fastest guy over the 100 metres. You have your regionals, which is the west or east districts or the north districts. And then at the end of the year, you have the national championships. So that was the goal. We said we'll try and do as well as we can for those three. Training was going well. The first of the three was in Aberdeen in April. But I woke up in the morning and my knee was really sore again because I've got arthritis in my knee as well. And I knew I had to take some tramadol to get rid of the pain. But I also know if I took the tramadol, I'm not going to be able to run as well. <laughs> so I had the time taking the tramadol just as I woke up. So I was still getting the pain relief, but we were off just as much as I'd be able to compete. So we got that event out of the way, went well, surprisingly I won it. I won the Scottish University Championship. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember driving home thinking where I was a couple of years ago with reactive arthritis and where I was years before that with the car crash and all those doctors saying that you'll never be able to walk again. So the fact that I was able just to run, never mind turn up at this competition and win it, was nuts. And then they said to me, oh, by the way, there's an international match. Every year there's a Scottish university versus Irish universities international match. Because you'd won the 100 meals, you're going to represent Scottish universities against Irish universities in May. I was driving home thinking, fucking hell, that's a, a crazy couple of years from then saying to me, you'll never walk again, you don't have a kneecap to where I was then. Do you think that was the first moment for you? Because if I look at your story, it, was, it would be so easy at so many points to give up on life and think, this is just my fate. Bad things happen to bad people. Yep. I must be a bad person and therefore bad things happen to me. Uh -huh. And just accept that and be ignorantly blissful um, in life and just follow the path that you, you did. Do you think because you had finally one positive feedback loop yep. where you applied yourself, sort of you set a goal, applied yourself, achieved that, do you think that was a moment for you to think, if I do this same process again in another domain or the same domain, I can actually have better outcomes for my life? Whereas prior to that, you didn't have that kind of process flow. Yeah. Do you think that was a? Do you think that was positively reinforcing? Without a doubt, it's a blueprint. Like once you do something, you get success out of it. When you initially started, it was difficult. Every other time you get something difficult in your life, you know, well, the last time I had something difficult, I stuck at it and I was able to do it. So why can I not do that this time? So every time subsequently after that, somebody gave you something that you couldn't do, I said, well, I can't do that just now, but why can I not do it in six months? Why can I not do it in a year? So how did the international match go? It went well. I came second, ran 100 meters in 10.9. It was the first time I broke 11 seconds. Uh, and then we went to the West Districts. The West Districts was two weeks before that as well. That was the other one of the three I wanted to win. And I won that as well. So I was thinking then I actually could win those three 100 meter titles in the one year. But we went down south to a British Athletics uh, match representing Glasgow. And I done hurdles stupidly for points. One of the, the coaches asked me if I could do the hurdles and I didn't. I pulled my groin and everything just went sideways after that. The time the national championships came around, I got disqualified in the semi-finals. But I wasn't in the shape that I was in in May anyway. And I knew, like I said, a year before that, I probably had a year or two of doing this. Because the level you have to train up for the 100 metres intensity and the weights takes a toll on your body if you're not carrying significant injuries like I did. And then it just went away. The following year, I was just constantly injured and I just stopped. But what that did was it made me focus more on my studies at university. Now, after first year at university, I thought, well, this is easy. I'm definitely getting a degree. It was no longer challenging. It wasn't a, a fact of, am I going to be able to pass my exams and get a degree? It was, I'm definitely going to pass my exam. 
I know I'm going to do it to a degree. I can't focus on my running anymore. I need to do something that's going to give me a challenge. That's the way my mind works. If I don't have something to focus on, I just wouldn't do it. I wouldn't be as focused. Do you think that's because your life has been literally a blueprint of intensity? Your life, you're you're so acclimatized to intense scenarios that you need that. And when you've started to solve a lot of your problems and take yourself out of the gangs, take yourself out of prison, unfortunately, your your mum passed away, so that wasn't taking as much of a mental toll yeah. on you. Do you think there was a void in your life? 100%. I always had to have something to focus on. I don't know, initially, maybe it was just to take my mind off everything else that was going on. But after a while, I realised that doing this was giving me a lot of success. Why would I want to stop? If I'm waking up at five in the morning every single morning for years and I'm getting good results, why would I stop doing that? So I knew I had to have that reason to wake myself up. I'm guessing when you went to university, you were an older student as well. Yeah, I was, I. So not only did you have that factor, but the, the working class kind of criminal background. Yeah. How did you carry yourself with him? university did you display your whole self did you oh, show definitely your I, I did not change at all i think if you asked any of my friends at university they would say that like, he was the same guy he was when he was 18 19 i cut my hair the same way i didn't change the way that i spoke didn't change the way that i dressed like a lot of people did yeah i was i didn't change at all and i know that i shouldn't i know that if you want to set an example to other people other people are in the similar situation to me i just need to be who i was and who they are i'm guessing you didn't have the same luxuries at universities at university that your your peers had you probably had to work financing university was probably a worry for you yep how were you perceived by other people was there any times where you they portrayed you as an outcast even though you embraced yep. yourself and you brought your whole self to university i suppose that's something you've asked ask them uh, to figure out what they would say about that I, I don't think so maybe some of them did and they just didn't say it to me so who's really going to say that to you uh, I, I i definitely felt i was a working class boy from Glasgow who was at Glasgow University and that in its own right was a bit odd. I was the only guy in my class, I suppose you would say, that was from a similar background. I don't think I met anybody at Glasgow University who had been to Pullman, even though I'm sure that there's, there was plenty. Financially, you're, you're absolutely right. I was working throughout university as well. I couldn't have the luxury of not working, whereas other students could afford to live off their mum and dad. Their mum and dad was giving them money. They could turn up and focus on their studies 100% of the time. Whereas I was going home looking after my dad, I was going home and training, or I was going home and working, or I would miss lectures because I was up all night with my dad. So there was definitely other things that I had to deal with that maybe a lot of students don't, but I'm sure other students have their own worries as well. If I were to think about the experience of a first year university student, it involves nights out, drinking, <laughs> lack of discipline at times. Yeah. It could have been really easy for you to fall into that. Did, did you? No, I drank once my full four years at Glasgow University. Was that intentional? Yep, definitely. I knew uh, drinking, not just because of the trouble I was getting in previously, I knew I wasn't going to get into trouble anymore. So I wasn't not drinking because I was worried that I might get into trouble. I just wasn't drinking because it was healthy for me. And I get rid of reactive arthritis. I think purely based on my diet because the, the drugs they gave me, the methotrexate, the cancer drugs, I stopped taking them. I stopped taking them because I felt worse taking them than I did without them. So I just stopped it. And it was maybe a year or two of just consistently eating well and training well and rehabbing and stretching and sleeping well and de-stressing which got rid well I think got rid of the active arthritis for me. Given the fact that you're at the University of Glasgow that has a lot of stereotypical <laughs> connotations yeah. tied to you hear people mocking the accent or right. mocking the way of living given your background was coupled with a culture of mates similar to your own background yeah. Were you in still in contact with them and did they have perceptions of you going to university? How oh, did you remove yourself were, from then? 
they were just as shocked as I was. Like they were as, like, in, a, in a good way or a, oh, a definitely way? in a good way. Like Stephen's going to university. I never expected that. I always thought he would be dead. But interestingly, four of my friends went to to jail when we were younger. Three of my friends, and only three of my friends, including myself, went to university. There's something positive that's came out of university, that experience, uh, from young offenders interesting for them. Three of us decided to change their life and go to university, and that was the only three of my friends, my friends I was hanging about with at that time, that did go to university. I don't think it's a surprise that three of, the only three that went to university were three of them that went to, to jail as well. So I guess in essence, if you were to do what's called the eraser test, take the hardest moment of your life, or take a hard moment of your life and go back and erase it. Uh-huh. But it meant that you were to erase all the lessons and opportunities that came thereafter. I'm guessing you would never have wiped Pullman, no. despite it giving you a criminal record and that will last alongside no. you for, yeah. for the rest of your life. I guess you would never erase I, that experience. No, I wouldn't. And, and on that point as well, it's actually, thankfully the Scottish government's changing the law on that. Yeah, the new disclosure Scotland Act 2020 is actually getting rid of certain convictions or reducing the period before those convictions become non-disclosable, i.e. they're not going to be on your record. So they just made that law last year, or 2020 they did, it's called the Disclosure Scotland Act 2020, and for the convictions that I had, they fall within list B offences, which meant under the old rules, after 15 years, those would be removed from my record. But under the new law, it's after 11 years, which means all mine are already gone. So we're just waiting on implementation of this happening, which is probably going to happen at some point in 2023, which would mean that my criminal record that I had when I was younger would be completely wiped. So tell me about the time you got your degree. My How degree. did that make you feel? Good and bad because it was during COVID, so I didn't get a graduation. <laughs> so I graduated from Glasgow University in 2020. COVID. I sat my final year exams in my living room, in my boxers, on the laptop. <laughs> now that's not the way I'd, I'd imagine finishing university. It's not the way I'd imagine taking my exams. It's not the way I'd imagine doing my graduation. I'd never got a graduation because of COVID. How did you manage that feeling? Because you had dedicated so much of your new formed life <laughs> yeah. to having that moment and you got, you got robbed of it essentially. I, I wasn't really worried about it because I knew I was going to medical school eventually. In the back of my mind, I was like, I'm not graduating. I'm going to graduate from Glasgow, but I'm not going to do the graduation ceremony. But it doesn't really matter because I know I was going to go and do medicine. The, the plan was always to go to Glasgow Uni, go to college, go to uni, get a degree. That's a backdoor into medicine. That was always the plan. So when I graduated university, I had two options. I always wanted to go to the military, right? And now I'd got to the point where my legs were good enough that I could pass the, well, I thought I could pass the medical exam for the military. And I thought, if I'm going to go to the military, let's do something really, really tough. One of the toughest places you can go in the military is the Royal Marines, oh, right? Well. So I said to myself, right, I'm going to go to the Royal Marines because under the old rules, the convictions were there for 15 years. At that point, around 11 years had passed, right? So my thinking was I'll do four years in the Royal Marines. After I leave the Royal Marines, I can come back to medical school and I won't have to worry about the convictions because they'll be gone anyway. So I trained for a year after graduating university for the Royal Marines, got my body in really good shape, passed all the physical exams. But I also know that Royal Marines training was really, really difficult, right? A lot of people go down on the, the camp pass out because it's so tough. And I know with the injuries that I had, there was a real possibility that that was going to happen to me as well. So while I was applying for Royal Marines, I was also applying for medical school. I applied for medical school and every medical applicant in the UK has to do the UCAT, which is UK Clinical Aptitude Test. You have to do that as part of your medical application. So I'd done that on the Friday. On the Monday, I started Royal Marines training. So I was preparing myself to do the test for medical school at the same time preparing to go down for the Royal Marines on the Monday. 
<laughs> this is so hardcore. Like yeah. you are the descriptor of description of hardcore. Yeah. Do you think if I were to really remove myself here? Do you think you almost fetishize the intensity? Like you totally need. You you are such a hardcore person. Do yeah. you think like you did that because of the challenge, not because of the actual outcome? Definitely. Like in first year, when I finished first year of university, but like I said to you, I thought I'm definitely getting a degree. I need to do something academically more difficult. So I thought I'm going to teach myself a language. So I've not got much time to do it. I thought I was going to go to classes and learn Spanish. But I wrote down everything I was doing from the moment I woke up to the moment I went to bed. Because of uni, because of work and looking after that and everything else, didn't have extra time. But one thing I was doing every single day was listening to the news. If I'm just going to teach myself Spanish by listening to the news. And for the first six months, I was just driving to uni and driving to work. I would listen to Spanish news podcasts and understood almost nothing initially. But I just kept writing down words. Every day I would write down 20, 30 words and what they meant in English. And then over time, my vocabulary just kept getting better and better and better. And it got to the point where by the time we got to third year of university, I would be going to a class to learn about the heart, for example, right? And I would be watching videos of the heart before my class in Spanish <laughs> <laughs> to make it more difficult. Because I wasn't getting motivated as much anymore for the degree because I knew I could do it. So I knew I had to get it really, really difficult. And then now it's at the point, when I'm at university, I'm writing on the left-hand side of my page with my left hand. I taught myself to use my left hand and then with the right hand, I'll write in Spanish. If you look at my notebook from universities, it looks like two different people writing it. The left-hand side page is done with my left hand, which is different handwriting from my right hand. And my right hand, I'm writing in a different language. <laughs> oh, I'm honestly so <laughs> speechless. So, I, I, knew your, I know your Marines career as well came to an abrupt end. Yep. A very hardcore end yep. as well. Aye, you can say that again. So, I went round to Limston. That's where the Royal Marines training centre is, down in Devon. Started Royal Marines training, and I knew during Royal Marines training at different stages you have to do the bleep test. It's part of the, the gym pass out test that you have to do. And for the context, what is the bleep test? The bleep test is you get 20 meter distance, you've got one line at 20 meters and another line at 20 meters, and you're running back and forward to a bleep. And that bleep gets progressively faster as you go up the levels. So every stage of the Royal Marines training, that will get more intense and more intense. But I, I didn't do as much of that because I knew the problems and the stress it was going to put on my knees. So when I did do bleep test training for the next couple of days, my knees were really, really, really sore. But I also knew that the fitness that I had would be comfortable to pass the bleep test anyway. But during Royal Marines training, we were out on the grass doing the bleep test. But the grass is obviously really uneven. I go to turn on one of the, one of the lines and I could hear a pop in my left knee. Now, I didn't know at the time it wasn't until I got the MRI done months later that I'd torn my patella and my quadriceps tendon in my, in my leg. So I went to Medbay. Uh, Medbay in the military is just where you go and see the doctor. They gave me a chip. A chip's basically you're just not, you don't have to do physical activity for a couple of days. But they gave me lots of painkillers as well. And I had a, a big field exercise coming up. So to pass out that phase of training, you do a three-day field exercise and you have to do a gym test. But once you pass the gym test and the field exercise, you remain at that point. You don't have to go back and do that full month. But if you fail that month during the month before you complete it, you have to do the full thing again. So I knew I had to do the three-day field exercise and then the gym pass out test. And then I could tell the doctor how bad my knee actually was. So we're out on exercise. The first night of the exercise, it's pitch black. I've got all my kit on. I've got my rifle. I've got my Bergen. I'm also carrying a jerry can. With this injury? With this injury, yeah. So I'm taking the painkillers that the doctors give me just now because I know I need to get through these three days 
they're doing pass out tests then i can go to the doctor right <laughs> which is stupid when you find out why because i was walking in the middle of the night you can't you can't see in front of you you're just listening to the guy's footsteps and i put my left foot in a hole and i fall down and i smash it off the ground and i keep hearing it crack so we got back to you're sharing a tent right i'm sharing a tent with another guy i said the guy i'm sharing a tent with so i broke my leg he says no you've not and i said i have so i put my head touch on roll my my, my trouser leg up and there's a bit of bone sticking out my knee so i knew i'd broke my leg but i knew i couldn't say to the training team that i'd broke my leg because if i said to them i'd broke my leg they were going to take me off the exercise if they took me off the exercise i would have to do that whole bit of training as well again so i just took all the painkillers that i'd had i got through the next three days got back to camp but my troop sergeant seen i was walking funny he said steven what's wrong and i said i've got blisters on my feet i did have blisters i said i've got blisters on my feet that's why i'm limping he said okay go to medbay again tomorrow and just get that checked to make sure there's no infection there I said, okay, I'll go to Medbay, I'll get more painkillers, and then the following day I'll do the gym test, and then I'll tell them about my leg. So I go down to Medbay, the doctor comes out to see me, he asked me to come across, I'm walking across, he said, why are you limping like that? I said, I've got blisters on my feet. He said, you wouldn't be limping like that for blisters. <laughs> right? So he'd done a, an exam, and he seen my knee, and he said, what have you done to your knee? My knee was twice the size of my right one, it swelled up, it was massive, and he looked at it, and he's like, there's a bit of bone coming out of your knee, you need to go to the hospital. So I knew then that that was that over. He sent me to the hospital, I was in the hospital for 10 days, sent me sick on shore. Sick on shore means in the military, that because your injuries you've sustained, they send you home until you rehabilitate. While I was rehabilitating, thankfully, remember I'd made the application for medical school. I got the email from medical school saying I've been accepted for the interview. And at Dundee University, the, the place that accepted me for the interview, they base everything on the interview once you get to that point. So if you get to the interview, Everything else after it doesn't matter. It's your performance on the interview which makes a difference. And I know if I could get to the interview, I could put myself across really, really well. So I thought I had a really, really good chance of getting into medical school. And I thought, if I can't get my knee rehabilitated because I was waiting on an operation for it, potentially I could fall back as a plan B and go to medical school. And that's, that's quite a good plan B for anybody. I, I've never heard someone say, oh, plan B is becoming a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> plan B is to become a doctor, right? That's what it was in my head. The plan was always four years in the Marines and then go back to medical school. But I got the MRI, the MRI basically said your knee was, you're fucked, the knee was bad, I had grade 4 arthritis, I had metal fragments from the previous operation that came loose, so it was just lying about my knee. My knee, I didn't realise how bad it actually was until I seen the x-ray. For most people's kneecap was just one bone, just the patella, I mean this is like 33 different pieces. And I was counting them all. So in Spanish. In Spanish. <laughs> so I knew, I knew that the Marines was probably not going to work out. But anyway, the, the doctor at Marines phoned me and said, you're due to start back training if you're ready. I said, I am ready. They're due to start back training in two months' time. So I get my body ready for training, didn't do a bleak test at all until the week before we're down to start Royal Marines training again. The, the week that I do the bleak test, the same thing happens again with my knee. I didn't realise at the time that the reason I kept hinging on that knee because I just didn't give it time to heal. Like you said, with that intensity stuff, but the, the longest rest I took was two or three days. So I went back down to Royal Marines training, said to him, like, my knee's job, I can't do it. They medically discharged me. When they medically discharged me, I got the email from Dundee saying, congratulations, you had been accepted for, for medical school to start in September of this year. You seem like the most hardcore person that I've ever met. I really, I really mean that in the nicest way. Uh -huh. You also seem like you've had periods where you've been a really dangerous man yep. to yourself, to society. Definitely. And became dangerous with your, your, your mind uh -huh. and your attitude and your resilience and your discipline. When you got that news that you were accepted to med school, yep. 
did you have any sort of inner emotion, any sort of pray, like kind of almost visceral pride where you would cry or you would want to hug someone? Like you just seem so hardcore, and, uh, both in kind of phys- physicality yeah. and uh-huh. mindset. Are, are you in touch with your feelings? Could you actually feel that moment? Well, I was definitely excited. I, I definitely didn't feel I wanted to cry. I was just excited about it. My dad was there with me. I told him he was really excited. Uh, I can just remember when that happened. I remember thinking back to that day in Pullman and looking out my, my cell window just before I got released in the hotel that first time I had the time to think and just thinking if I could go back in time and tell that guy, I said, don't worry about it. Everything's going to be absolutely fine to see where I was now. But then I also started thinking about my friends from Pullman as well, which did make me sad because the vast majority of them end up dead. A lot of them get murdered. A lot of them are still in the jail just now serving life sentences. So if you probably that's if you put in percentages, 90, 95% of my friends from Pullman all ended up in one of those two categories. So if you went back in time to Pullman and we were all there, I'd done 90, 95% possibility of being there as well. Then now here I was, I've already got a degree, been accepted for medical school. And all my friends back then they're all they're all dead or in jail. If I were to think about social mobility as a concept, a huge driver of it is the amount of ease or friction between an individual and their access and awareness to opportunity. You seem to have been given a stroke of luck where you were put on a railway track. You had all the, the traits and skills and mindset, but you were put on a railway track that uh-huh. had a better future. Yep. You could take the skills and traits that you have and put that into drug dealing yep. or anything else that was quite illicit and you would be just as determined, successful and hardcore at it. Uh-huh. But it'd be just the wrong track. Yep. Are you really, I'm guessing you're so grateful to be put, it was when that doctor said to you, you, you could go to university, you could, stu- you could study this. Um, that was your ra- railway track. Yeah, it was my dad's neurologist that said that to me. He said that you could go and do medicine, you're a smart guy. We're having conversations about pretty in-depth uh, topics about neurology and Parkinson's disease. Why don't you go and apply that talent somewhere positively? But like you said, again, it's a product of your environment. Somebody that has those tools to be successful in one area because we're born in a poor, a poor, uh, a poor place and they hang about with friends who are selling drugs, they then use that talent and that intelligence in the wrong way just because they never had access to anything else to do with it. Like how many people that you see that sell drugs, right, and the logistics that go behind that and how smart you have to be implement all that, if they could put that into a legitimate business instead of going down the wrong path? And a lot of that is just because of where they were born. And sometimes it's not even access. What drives the access is the awareness. Yep. I didn't have conversations about where I work around the dinner table growing up. Uh-huh. You definitely probably didn't have no. conversations about medicine around no, the dinner table. Definitely not. No. What you were probably seeing was people using the same skills to climb the social hierarchy within the gang culture yep. or drug dealing yep. and, and the likes. Now that you reflect on your story, now that you're studying your PhD, Medicine. Medicine, medicine, sorry. Studying medicine. Do you not also think what else is out there that I've just not had in my peripheral vision that I could apply what I'm doing right now to? Or are you still grateful that that's what you're doing? Are you still dead set on that? A bit of both, I suppose. I suppose we don't really know we've got a talent for something until we try it. Until you have access to try something, you never know if you're going to be good at it. How many people growing up in poor, poor... Uh, places in Glasgow and all around the world would be really good at tennis or something, something that's more associated with more middle-class backgrounds. You never know you've got a talent for a specific thing until you have the the chance to actually try it out. Is there any degree of 
what you what choice do you think the choice that you made to study medicine is because you could see you could you were interacting with so many doctors within your yeah. your, your teenage years you knew that was a respectable and well-paid profession yeah. do you think it was the credibility of that plus the kind of emotional factor of your, your, your dad and your, and your mom uh -huh. do you think because you knew the credibility of doctors do you think that's the reason you'd embedded yourself in that whereas you could apply the same thing to art right mm -hmm. the same the same amount of skills to art but it's a risk risky uh field yep. there's no there's no um so there's no hierarchy to it uh -huh. um do you think the amount of security behind a, a career in medicine is what also drove you to do that probably but that definitely wasn't my my first intention in medicine it was always to help people i always seen the difference that the doctors was made to my mom and dad the positive differences it would make i always wanted to do that for other people as well and for my parents uh, obviously being a doctor that's paid well it's a pretty secure job that definitely helps i never had that growing up but the the vast majority of the reason i wanted to do it was to help other people and because i enjoyed medicine as well how the human body worked how we could give drugs to prevent certain illnesses and diseases that was all really really interesting to me as well and that was stuff like i said i was doing anyway i was doing that before i was at college before i was at university so i thought why not just use the stuff that i'm doing and get a degree for it at the same time it just made sense the fact that you're doing it to be useful and helpful for other people. I think people who are in a situation of like that mm -hmm. don't get help themselves. How do you manage being, or are you prepared to be at such help to other people when in fact you have not had perhaps the help that you've needed? I would definitely like to be. That's one of the reasons why I wanted to do it. I'd never had that help growing up at all. Like, and I remember in Pullman, I was looking for like, a positive role model, like somebody that made the mistakes that like I did and, and turned their life around. And I definitely didn't find it back then. All the books I was reading was about local gangsters and drug dealers. So uh, having a positive role model was definitely something I think would have been of value. And if I could be that for somebody else that's maybe right now just left Pullman, maybe watching this, thinking, if he can turn his life around, why can I not? Do you know what I mean? And he definitely can. And that goes back to the first question I asked you, why you want to come on the podcast. Mm -hmm. Are you scared that the rug is pulled beneath your feet? Something happens in your personal life or your health. I would be scared, as because I'd say we're friends, I'd be scared in case something in your life comes to an abrupt end and yeah. you can't, just like what happened when you were in the hospital or before that, something like that happens again. Are you scared, scared of that at all? No. No, not at all. No, I think... I've always thought about the possibility what could go wrong for any of the stuff that I'm doing for stopping me to do it. Could I find something else after that? Definitely. Like for medicine, I don't think there's anything from like bad an injury, like you said, or some severe illness that could happen, but that could happen to any of us. If we stopped everything we're doing for the fear of something that's going to happen to us tomorrow, we'd never get anything done. Definitely something could happen medically that would stop me from studying medicine. But apart from that, which could happen to anybody else, I don't think I'm at any higher risk of something happened to me prevent me becoming a doctor than anybody else. Your story is almost like a treadmill of intensity that just gets faster and faster and faster. When you finish your, uh, your medicine degree, mm -hmm. you, I'm guessing you work as a general practitioner or in a hospital as a doctor. Yep. The variability of intensity probably won't really scale as it has for the last 10 years. Yeah. Do you think you will almost be addicted to the intensity that you'll have to do something else? 100%. I've already been thinking about that. I've already had the conversation with the orthopedic surgeon at Edinburgh the other day. I've got a letter from him saying that I can return to training for the Marines as well. So it's it's already something I've been thinking around. Like I know 
medicine's difficult on its own and so is the Royal Marines, but if I could do the Royal Marine Reserves in a reserve capacity or maybe once I've graduated, go back to the Royal Marines, that's something I definitely want to do. What does 50-year-old Stephen Beatty look like? If you were to close your eyes and think that far ahead, mm -hmm. given the fact that you have visualised and planned ahead in the past, what does that era of Stephen look like? Have you thought about that much? Yeah, quite a lot. A successful neurologist that's... Uh, also got his Green Beret from the Royal Marines. That's what a 50-year-old Stephen looks like, definitely. Do you think anyone has done that before? I think there's been, yeah, I think there surely there's been Royal Marine doctors. Uh, don't know any off the top of my head, but I don't know if there have been that many of them, though. But it's definitely possible. And it's something I definitely think that I can do. And it's something I'm going to try and do. I don't know if someone will listen to this from a very similar background to yours, or I don't know if someone's going to be going through some of the emotions that you were going through. But they may be going through a similar flavour of it. Mm -hmm. If they're sitting thinking, oh, it's good for him, he got access to university, or it's good for him to come out the other side, but I just can't see that far ahead for me, what yeah. kind of advice would you give them? Take it day by day. I couldn't see that far ahead either. No way. If you asked me back then, could I see where I was now or where I was going? But I definitely knew that I could change. I knew it was going to be really, really tough. I knew that it was going to be people trying to pull you back. There's going to be friends who didn't want you to change because they weren't willing to change. I would say to that person, like, find that person in your life who's going to encourage you, who's going to inspire you to do better, who's actually going to pull you down the right path. We all have that. Maybe it's your parents, your friends, your grand, your teacher, somebody. Like, find that person, attach yourself to them. I think one of the most important things is to surround yourself with positive people. We are a collection of who we hang around with. That's, there's no doubt about that. So if you can hang around with positive people who are going to encourage you, who are going to be super motivated, so when there's days that you don't want to do it, that person's going to say, you know, get out your bed get it done that's exactly what you need to surround yourself but if you surround yourself with those people you have to be that person as well you know it's not all one way you have to be able to inspire your friends as well surround yourself with people that's going to inspire you and you need that inspiration how do you have that conversation with your pre-existing mates the ones that aren't holding you to account the way you want it to be yeah. held to account how do you have that conversation that you need to leave that that inner circle uh, so i'm guessing you had to speak to people like that at some point in your life yeah i don't know if i actually had the conversation i think i just drifted away I think when we get older, we have friends when we're younger we no longer hang around with. But the, the core group of my friends when I was younger, we're still best friends. So my friends from when I'm like 13, 14, I still phone them all the time in regular contact, yeah. Can you still relate to them? I can, I. I definitely, that's me. That's who I was. That's who I am. I grew up as a working class boy from Glasgow with them. We grew up together. We just went down slightly different paths. But some of my friends, like... They went and got degrees as well, and they've been very successful. Chemical engineering degrees and uh, business management degrees. So it's not like every single one of my friends, when we hung around, all went down the bad path apart from me. It was quite a lot as it went down the good path. It was just more of my friends from Pullman that unfortunately didn't uh, turn their lives around the way that I did, unfortunately. What does this next chapter look like for Stephen? Five years of hard work at medicine. Hopefully at some capacity, uh, Royal Marine Reserves. Some military role over the next five years. Maybe I'll have to wait until I graduate before I could do that full time. I'm not sure. But the next five years, I know it's going to be difficult. Medical school is difficult. But that's where the next five years of my life is going to be occupied. Stephen, it's been really heartwarming to be able to share your story. And the fact that you didn't want to do it to build a platform or for sympathy or mm. empathy, but to showcase your story to other people that might be in it like i said a similar flavor of, of the situations that you've been in 
Have you ever thought about starting a platform or using your story and presence for greater good? Because this is only one channel yeah. that I'm using to share it. Yeah. And I think your story is so universally shareable and it can be learned from. And I mean, the, like I said, your story is so, so intense and so hardcore, but it's there's so many universal lessons that are kind of laced throughout. Have you ever thought about using your story as a, as a baseline or a platform for greater good are you going to do more of these podcasts and stuff potentially if somebody asked me and i thought that could make a difference with doing it i would i've had friends who are teachers message me asking me if they could come into classrooms one of my friends who's a teacher in a pretty rough area and he has kids that can relate to the problems that i was getting involved in when i was their age he's asked me at some point to go into the class and give them a speech uh, i would definitely like to at some point go in there and do that like i said if there's other podcasts out there that ask me to do it i definitely think about doing it if i thought that could make a difference where is it starting one on my own probably not don't really have the time but if somebody else wants me to come on theirs then i definitely would in spanish or in english in Sp i've done one in spanish <laughs> <laughs> i come from a, a similar background but way less intense just a kind of working class community uh -huh. and now that i've got a podcast and i have a kind of normal job I still feel somewhat guilty for that. Yeah. Just to have a little bit of security in my life or to have a, a career that's somewhat respectable uh, in the wider domain. I feel guilty for that. Even though I'm not earning crazy money or much money, to be honest. Uh -huh. Just the fact that I've been given an opportunity because it was a charity that took me out of where I was and put me on an apprenticeship program. But I feel guilty for it, almost. Yeah. Like, I wish other people had that that opportunity do you mm -hmm. ever feel guilty given the the, the fact definitely i always think sometimes like why me it's like i could have easily been murdered like my friends were it was just just by chance and luck that i didn't die i didn't do anything to get stabbed in the lung instead of the back of the heart just by chance the reason i didn't bleed to death from my hands was just by chance the reason i didn't die in the car crash was just luck i had no influence in any of that so sometimes you sort of have like the imposter syndrome or why me? Why did they die? Why did they serve life sentences in jail? And why am I the one that's now at medical school? Sometimes that's difficult. So I, I think, I think of that quite a lot. How, how, di how different it could have been. That could have easily been me. Both that guilt plus all the traumatic, visually traumatic things that you've had to endure and see. Mm -hmm. Has that had any effect on your mental health and your well-being at all? Undoubtedly, but it's never been the point where I've never really been depressed either, which is strange. I think maybe like physical training, you get stronger to deal with stuff. You get mental training, like if you're dealing with stress constantly from a very early age at 12, 13, 14, the sort of stresses I encounter now is not like the stress of watching your mum die of cancer. Or I remember finding my mum in a diabetic coma on the floor and I had to give her a glucagon injection to save her life when my dad's absolutely screaming in the other room because he doesn't know what's going on. That's stress. Everything else I'm doing now is not stressful at all. You're going to pay me through SAS to go to university and study medicine and that's stress. You're paying me to do something I'd be doing anyway to become a doctor at the end of it. Come on, that's not anywhere near the level of stress I had growing up. So when other people are maybe super stressing and pulling their hair out about stuff like that, I'm thinking that's not real stress for me anyway. The, the stress I had to deal with when I was younger was actual stress, right? You're worried about somebody dying, your mother dying right in front of you. Whether or not you fail an exam at medical school, that doesn't relate to that in the slightest. So I think that was a massive benefit for me growing up. I know that from your story, from the intimate details that we shared, there was a time where you almost lost your mom whilst you were in prison. Yeah. Yeah. And you felt that you, you, I couldn't you do there's nothing within your control that you could do about that. Can you tell me about that story? Yeah, I was, so it was Friday night. 
we were out playing pool in Pullman and you get a chance to phone, use the phone. So I phoned my mother and we're having a conversation, but she starts speaking really, really weird. And I know the signs of her having a, a diabetic hypo. Now a diabetic hypo is when your blood sugar drops really, really low. And she said she was feeling faint and then she just stopped talking. And when she stopped talking, the guards, the people who were in charge of the prison said, right, that's your time up. Everybody back in their cell. And it was Friday and I knew we weren't coming back till later on in the Saturday. And I said to them, I need to stay on the phone. It's an emergency. I said, but you can't. You need to go back in your room. So I was in my room myself that full night, couldn't sleep. I had no idea what was going on. I don't know if she was dying there, if somebody was there with her, did the ambulance been phoned? Am I going to phone her in the morning? Or is somebody going to speak to me before I get a chance to phone her and say that your mum's passed away? Now that, along with everything else, was the reason why I decided I can't keep doing this. That's so stressful. And it's not fair on everybody else, do you know what I mean? You can imagine going to your room and you've got a lock on the door and your mum's dying and there's nothing you can do. You don't have a phone, you can't leave, you can't get in the car, you can't drive away. You're stuck in this place because of stuff that you did. For your own fault, you're now stuck in this room and in this cell. Your mum's potentially dying out there and there's nothing you can do about it. That's tough. That's stress. Like I said to you earlier on, like, do you worry about mental health stuff? Like, no. Because that stuff that I dealt with back then was real stress. I feel because of these circumstances that you've been in, that's what's developed the ability for you or the appetite for you to be hardcore. You're mm -hmm. always chasing something that's a bit more secure, a bit more extreme, that's further away from where you once were. You're running away from it yep. almost with all these different endeavors. Uh -huh. Do you ever just want to have a complacent, comfortable, secure, quiet life at all with no. a, a wife or family and you're retired? Does that even like cross your mind, that kind of stability, like comfort and stability? Stability and definitely does. Comfort, no. Definitely not. Everything I've ever done that's been positive has came from leaving my comfort zone. So the fact that I'm thinking, like I said at uni, when I thought everything was getting comfortable, I had to do something to make it uncomfortable again or getting up really, really early or taking cold baths. I don't think I'll ever stop doing that. And I don't think I should because everything I get out of doing stuff that's difficult is positive. If you're doing something that's hard, but what you're getting out of it is positive, it'd be silly to stop. It'd be silly to change that. But in regards to stability, yeah, who doesn't want that? Financial stability, having a home to go home to, not having to worry about sleeping on the streets and having money in the bank. Yeah, I want that, but I certainly don't want too much comfort. Do you think you could learn to change that? I could probably learn to change it. The question is where I would want to. From the outside, then I don't know if that would be good for you no. to change that. Nah, definitely not. Not at all. I think that the things I do that's really, really difficult enable me to do everything else that I'm doing. So that's like, like saying to you is like, do you think you could stop eating? It's like, you definitely could stop eating, but what would happen? You would mm -hmm. die. Do you know what I mean? You need to eat to do the stuff that you're doing. I need to do all these difficult stuff to do the stuff that I'm doing as well. And if you, if, like I said, if you're getting positive results from it, it'd be stupid to stop doing that. Given the fact that you're, you have been and will be surrounded by people that haven't been through what you've been through. Yep. And they do find university more stressful than you might find it. Uh -huh. How do you stop yourself from projecting the way you think and feel onto them? Because I've been guilty of that at times where I've had friends that have not had the stresses that I've been through. And because I've had, uh, and again, not to play top trumps for you, like my story is way less intense than yours, but because I've had stress in my life and I've overcame it and had balanced other things, uh -huh. I pro I've projected that on them at times. Like if I can do what you're doing yep. and get through it, despite the, my background, uh -huh. why can't you do it? Yep. Do you ever struggle with that? don't think I do, no. I know at medical school, I think it's the statistics are 2 or 3% of people at medical are from other backgrounds, from working class backgrounds. 
And I know a lot of these people don't have to work. I know a lot of these people are getting private tutors. A lot of these people whose mums and dads have got a lot of money, they can afford to get a private tutor into the house as well. Or they think like, and like I said, when stuff starts to get stressful for them, it's, it's not really stressful. And I'm thinking what you're saying to me isn't actually stressful, but I'm not going to tell you that because I don't want to. I don't want to go down that road. But I, there's just times when somebody said to me, oh, I got home last night and I couldn't charge my phone. I couldn't find my charger or my, my new iMac laptop wasn't working. And I'm thinking, look, you really think that's stressful? <laughs> Come on. But I don't say that to him. I say, all right, okay, hopefully you find your charger, mate. <laughs> <laughs> oh, mate, your story is honestly incredible. And like I said, you're not trying to build a platform for this. You're not trying to kind of play like working class top trumps and you use that as a brand. You're uh -huh. doing it for the benefit of other people to give visibility to a story that could be somewhat relatable. If I were to say to someone, to say to you, sorry, if I were to say to you, if you were to signpost the audience somewhere, because it's uh -huh. not going to be your, your, your page, is there a single source of help that you would like to direct people to? Whether it's a, some, a book that you read during uh, your, your hospital stay or a podcast you listen to, some, some singular piece or source of information that got you out of what you got. It's a difficult you question. Yourself in. I think of a singular piece that really, really helped me. That was a good book that I read quite a lot. I read two or three times a year. It's very, very short. You could probably read that in less than an hour. I'd recommend people to read that. Or I don't think there's just one thing that I would say that could definitely change or definitely change me. Podcasts like Joe Rogan was really good for me. Sure, everybody's aware of him. With the guests he brought on, the variety of guests, people like Neil deGrasse Tyson, and you start developing interest in other places. Or Rhonda Patrick, the biochemist woman, who starts talking about CRISPR and gene editing. I think exposing yourself to new ideas and stuff like that is very, very good. Because, like we said earlier, if you don't try something, how do you know you have an interest and a talent in it? So, I think if you're looking for a podcast, I would say Joe Rogan. Find guests that you've never listened to before in an area that you've never listened to before and see if you like it. I guess it goes back to those dinner table conversations that we spoke about. Like we didn't have people around the dinner table no. speaking about some of these different facets Sometimes of life. Sometimes we didn't even have the dinner table. <laughs> or the dinner. <laughs> or the dinner, <laughs> aye. You're eating your dinner in your, in your bedroom on the top of your pillow because you don't have a, a table in the living room to eat off of. But podcasts are like a virtual dinner room. You yep. can have, you can get into these conversations and get awareness and access to, to so many different subjects that you would never have heard otherwise. And I, I actually agree with that. Yeah, that, that tip that's, that's, that, that's a good point because remember I said earlier you want to surround yourself with people who are going to inspire you some people, don't, some people don't have that physically around them but what we do have with the internet and podcasts you can surround yourself with some of the smartest people that's ever lived you can go and listen to the smartest people that's ever lived free on the internet so you can surround yourself with whoever you want if you don't have them physically in your environment 100% I think that whole you're the average of the five people you surround yourself thing is true but 100%. it doesn't have to be physical no it doesn't it can be the five sources that you you tune into yeah it doesn't just have to be no, it doesn't have to be your neighbor it doesn't have to be your brother it doesn't have to be your sister just be that person you're listening to for two hours every day on a podcast eventually that person is going to have an influence on you and if you're listening to somebody that's intelligent it's going to be a positive influence and that was honestly the whole premise of this podcast when i first started it it was podcasts that pulled me out of where i was as a disadvantaged young man i could hear these conversations happening on on, on, on the internet uh -huh. but unfortunately at the time it was american yeah. um podcasters that i was listening to and they weren't speaking to me, me to me in my voice or max and they were using words that i didn't understand uh -huh. and i just thought it's such a shame that at the time when i first started this podcast i couldn't see even though there's such a great scene in scotland that i just didn't tap into it at the time i just thought oh there's no podcast that talked to me in a voice that i recognize or there's there's, there's no stories that i 
Uh-huh. I, I resonate with that are local. And and by the way, those podcasts were taking place. I just didn't have access yeah. to them. I wasn't aware of them. So that was my motivation for starting the podcast. And for a while, I was just getting mates who had inspirational stories in the podcast or people who were kind of local heroes that maybe shared their stories a couple of times um, because I wanted to be relatable. And I lost sight of that for a while, Stephen. I, I must admit, I was because of the intensity aspect, Aye. I was chasing for the next bigger guest. Yep. Um, oh, I was trying to go a bit better. 100%. He's yeah. been on Rogan. I'll try to get him on or... Or he's been on Netflix or he's founded X organization that made Y amount of money. And I lost sight of that. And then when Gordon uh, shared your story, and I thought, that's this is exactly why I started this podcast. Because you had never shared your story publicly before. Uh-huh. And I was like, I need to use my platform to be relatable to other people from my background. Like, we find ourselves in. So I'm so, so grateful, mate, that you agreed to come on. And I'm so glad we connected. That was a pleasure. Stephen Beatty, ladies and gentlemen, holy shit, holy shit, what a story, what a man, what a journey, what a mindset, everyone can take something away from that, even if it's just motivation, that, just editing that again tonight just totally, totally caffeinated me and gave me a new perspective of my life, I really hope you enjoyed that as much as I did recording it and editing it and producing it and putting it out there to you amazing folks, thank you for sticking around. It really means the world. Please give me a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning into this. It will mean the world. And share it with a friend. Share it with someone who's going through a hard time and might need the words of motivation and inspiration from Stephen. Also, I'd love to remind you that this podcast is sponsored by Vibe. Please check out their website. Use code DMAC for 15% off to get a Vibe shake for as little as £1.50 per drink. Thank you for supporting the podcast, Vibe. Thank you all for listening to this. See you in the next one.